We left off a few evenings ago. Trying to clarify the difference between everyday language and Dharma language and how it might have some practical value for us. I use as an example brainwashing, which in everyday language has taken on the meaning of where we, in a sense, color a person, I guess, clean them out and then color them a certain way. So he's brainwashed. And it's, it, my memory, if you recall, was it started with the Korean War. And, um, the brainwashing was done by people who were captured by the uh, North, what is now North Korean communi- communists. And there's a famous movie, I've forgotten the name of it, with Frank Sinatra and Angela Lansbury, and it's been made over again. And, um, but if you look at it with innocent eyes, uh, brainwashing is a very, very beautiful term. Some of you in the discussion groups uh, were not clear about what I meant, and I hope I can clarify that today. Brainwashing, if you just listen to it, I would say that's a large part of what we're doing in Vipassana meditation. We're learning how to empty the mind of all its content, not forever, And that le- what it leaves is a kind of a spacious stillness, which no words can do ju- do it justice. <clears throat> but is often talked about as a. Well, it isn't often used this term. I- I'll use it now. It's a form of intelligence that is. Uh, We've defined intelligence to mean logical, rational, accumulation of information, knowledge, rearrangement of it, creative use of it. In other words, the things that we've learned and known. And that's a wonderful use of, uh, of information and the power of mind. And if somebody's good at that, they're called intelligent, or even very intelligent. And there's no uh, reason to disqualify that. But we've defined intelligence unintelligently because there's another form of intelligence, and I'm using that uh, as being synonymous with wisdom or understanding. And the reason I'm doing that is somehow in teaching this way for years, wisdom is a term everyone loves it. It's a great, every university has wisdom unto it. Wherever you go, some building has and there's no one queuing up to do it. So it's, uh, we love it, we approve of it. Socrates was right. We all, some of us, many of us had it as freshman year in college. I still remember his basic teachings, some of them. Um, there's another kind of intelligence which is not irrational, it's non-rational. In that when the mind becomes very, very still, and spacious, and when in our practice, we're learning how to come to that. The, the washing the brain is washing the, the brain of 
all the con- so much of the content of mind is conditioned. It's literally uh, lots of memories. Look, uh, I've learned a lot these days from my granddaughter. She wants to be conditioned. She just loves it. She's starting to get older and is, doesn't love everything that we're trying to condition her to. But it's how she can be part of society, how she can fit in and be put, put, learn the rules of you do this then, you don't do that over here and so forth. She's hungrier to be conditioned. And you need it. So obviously we need that. Uh, but what the Buddha is saying is our relationship to this conditioning, which is unexamined, and uh, in, what, in regard to what I've just been saying, it's limiting us very much because if we don't use that capacity of intelligence that grows out of a skillful use of the conditioned mind, then we're not making use of an enormous, enormous resource. The magnitude of the mind is immense. And there's so much, and you can't put it in words. The Buddha only used, as far as I know, he, he didn't say very much about it, but he used the term luminous, the original mind. In other words, the mind before it got uh, conditioned is luminous. Words are limited, but that's not too bad. <laughs> I think it'd be nice to have a luminous mind. Okay. Uh, skillful. You've all been called yogis, right? Are you, why are you called yogis? You're not taking your right leg and putting it over your shoulder and touching your left ear with your... Because uh, there's a deeper meaning of yoga. Of yoga. One of the meanings of, of uh, yoga is skill in action. There are many meanings, nuances to that term. It's an ancient term, long before the Buddha, long before Hinduism. Skill in action on all levels. Um, skill in action is wisdom. There are different levels of wisdom, but all of it is uh, the art of living, learning how to live. So it's taking Socrates, uh, an unexamined life is not a life worth living. That's pretty harsh. Are you examining your life? If not, it's not what your your life is not worth anything. But you're here, so and we keep trying to spark a love of understanding and investigation of inquiry. But you wouldn't be here if you weren't interested in taking a fresh look at yourself. Why would you come here? Okay, so skill in action is on many levels learning how to relate to our mind in a new way. It's learning how to speak in a new way. It's learning how to behave in a new way. And it turns upon accuracy, clear seeing. You can't see clearly if you're conditioned. You're seeing through the conditioning. And so Often when we act, uh, the whatever we say or what we do, the solutions to problems that we face of necessity is based on for, uh, certain ways in which we've done it in the past. It might be successful. It might be based on misinformation or even total ignorance, but it's conditioned into us when we do it. Um, so what about that? So that now... If the mind is conditioned that way, and we need it for certain reasons so that we can live together, red means red, green means go, uh, then uh, what's, what's the point in cleansing the mind? 
Because what is being said is when the mind is not clear, it's not accurate, an enormous amount of unnecessary human suffering follows from that. If you're, if you're not seeing things, and it's inner seeing is the new skill, of course, but it's not inner versus outer because we're seeing the outer through the inner. We're seeing through yesterday's eyes. And we're doing the best we can. So your yesterday is different than my yesterday, and there's enough in common so that we can run this retreat. And we share a lot of things that the mind made up that are very useful, like time. We made it up. We mean clock time, it's virtual time. We made it up. There's no such thing. Miles? Where does that come from? We made that up too, but it's useful. Forty miles to Boston. Okay, great, I'm getting closer. Uh, so we're using the mind, we make up a lot of stuff. And practically speaking, much of that is, is very, very helpful. Um, <clears throat> Vipassana is that kind of deep seeing. Uh, so that that's one of the essential skills that we're learning. And, and if you recall, uh, what, this, what I was talking about is that seeing for us doesn't come through, at least not yet, through a chemical, through special machinery, through telescopes, microscopes, uh, photographic uh, brilliance, all the wonderful things that have taught us about this world that we live in. So this is an inner voyage. It's a voyage inside of self-discovery. Only you can do it, but you have to be equipped to do it. And it's, I often look at it and I, I'm amazed because the same mind that needs to be clarified is looking at itself and can clarify itself. It's all, it's like a one-person act. In other words, something in us can see how that something is being distorted, and in the seeing of it, it gets clearer. And, well, who's running this show here? What's going on? Um, let me give you an example. What, what does it mean to seeing clearly? It means... Uh, in our terms, terms like equanimous, uh, <clears throat> choiceless, choiceless here meaning not being for or against. And if you recall, uh, from, a, from the point of view of the Buddhist teaching, the main thing that we're cleansing the mind of is the, the kalesas, the three poisons, the three afflictions, greed, or that mind that's constantly wanting, want, it's always wanting something. It can be very subtle, and it's, it's quite common. Our society, I would say, you know, now, uh, uh, re recently, uh, I better finish so I don't forget, uh, is greed, hatred, and delusion. I don't want to forget the three of them. <laughs> when you're spontaneous, you forget stuff. It's, I'm very spontaneous, but I also, I once gave a talk on the Four Noble Truths, I only covered three of them. <laughs> and I... I I didn't know, and someone said, well, what about, you know, I said, oh, yeah, duh. <laughs> okay, I heard a politician uh, the other day talking about uh, putting down food stamps, uh, in other words, taking some money away from food stamps, uh, all things which kind of took money away from those who needed it the most in this uh, ugly struggle that goes on on the political level. And he said, what pe these people need to learn is the work ethic. 
Okay. Uh, perhaps I'm sure some people do. But there's a new ethic, which is never called it. It's the greed ethic. Greed is legitimate. It's, what's his name? Michael Douglas. You know, greed is good. Now, he wound up in jail. And, excuse me, I've learned all the things I know from the movies. <laughs> I haven't read a word of the Buddha. I saw a, I saw a film about the life of the Buddha. With, <laughs> I think Keanu Reeves played the... You know, Uh, so the ethic is, that's good. Uh, and from the point of view of the Buddha, if the Buddha would visit planet Earth, he'd say, don't you see that you think this is good for you, but you're destroying yourself because we're all interrelated. You can't poison this part of the planet and think that you, you're going to live in a part that isn't poison because it keeps uh, narrowing down until you realize all of us are interrelated. Okay, so greed, hatred, delusion. These um, greed, wanting, uh, aggression or aversion, and then delusion, which is sometimes called the mother of them. That is, they, they're, they're born from the fact that we don't see clearly. I mentioned that, I think, last evening. Okay, so now, how do we get this lens? We're doing, uh, I'm going to try to link it up with the practice that we're doing, see if, see if that can work. Um, when we... Uh, we've been using the breath exclusively for a few days, and then this morning we changed and opened it up uh, so that whatever is happening is what we attend to. So what, how do we know if our awareness is clear? Well, something in us can see the seeing. So that, for example, if the seeing itself, not anything else, if the seeing itself is colored by any of these kalesas, then it's not Dharma seeing, it's not clear. For example, um, if your awareness is, your, let's say you're being aware of a simple in and out breath, and it starts to become very beautiful, smooth, ah, in, out, in, out, good feeling, in, out. And then you, there's a subtle aspect of mind, this is mind, that affects the seeing, it's saying, I want more of this. I like it. And it's not going to be as blatant as the way I'm putting it. It's subtle. But there's a little bit. And if, as the mind gets clearer, it sees what it's up to. And it's usually no good. Okay. Uh, and it sees that it wants to see even more because it's enjoying this seeing so much that ah, just a wee bit more. And the next, oh, the next breath is going to be even more. The next sitting. And... Of course, that, that is not clear seeing. Or, we don't like what we're looking at. We see something and we don't want it to be there. That, the object is not what we want. That's aversion. And, and if the seeing is colored by that, not wanting to look at it because it's not what we want to be there, and there's a lot of things we don't want to be there. A lot. To go back to Hollywood movies again. Some years ago, there was a research study what is the most popular line that appears in films? This was about more than 10 years ago. Uh, so they, they went through, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of films to find out what line is repeated all over more than any other. And it was, let's get out of here. <laughs> in other words, wherever you are, let's get out of here. Uh, do you get it? 
So our training, I would say, I say this, and it sounds like I'm being a wise guy. I really mean it. I say the same things all the time. Now, we have to use, you know, we have a little joke here, a little something like this, an anecdote. I was from here, and this happened to me. So you realize we're human, too. We make these mistakes, so you feel better. Uh, <laughs> uh, but essentially, the heart of what I'm saying right now is we're encouraging all of us, including I'm encouraging myself, to come back again and again to what is. What is, is just this. It couldn't be more obvious. It's this. Right now, as I'm speaking, how is it for you? That's it. Yeah, but, uh, no buts. Okay, the but. Then now, now the but is it. <laughs> yeah, so, and yet the mind doesn't want, it wants to get out of here. It prefers to go back to some past. You, and I've learned with my mind, I don't know if yours, do you trust your memory? I've watched my memory. It's, it's hilarious if you, if you really are a mind watcher. And I've seen that the mind rewrites history the way countries do. Uh, it starts in the mind. It rewrites it so that suddenly my biography is such that it's serviceable for about where I am now and the things that I, oh yeah, I was never involved in that. Yes, you were. <laughs> and so you suddenly get a history that's very serviceable for the present moment. It makes up stuff, it lies, it uh, puts, it's shameless, okay. Or it prefers a world that's never going to exist. It's called a future. There is no such thing. Now, we have to make educated guesses about retirement, social security, you know, all that. Granted, we had a plan to get here. I don't mean to be foolish about it. It's practical, of course. Uh, but the truth is, all we have is now. And that just left <laughs> and, and became the, you know, where is it? There's not even a present. Where is your pre oh, There it is. Oh. Uh, so, but we're learning how to keep that mind steady, steady right there. And so, uh, if the seeing itself is colored by this quality of uh, wanting, not wanting, or delusion is, uh, there are many forms of it. One is just, you just simply, the mind is foggy, uh, hazy, uh, confused, conflicted, or, and here's a, a very refined one. It has to do with people. This is considered delusion. Let's say, um, and see if this is so for you, that, that these is supposedly, this is about you and me. It's not meant to just be more information to put in your hard drive. Uh, it's to get you to look at yourself. I hope that at least some of what I'm saying has to do with you as well as me. Okay. Um, what was I saying? Yes. So let's say um, you, you know somebody and you have a very un unpleasant exchange and then you form an image of that person. That they're uncomplimentary. They put you down. They insult you. And, uh, and then you don't see them for a little while. But the mind has a way of recording and then that incident becomes a conclusion about them. They're a bad person. They're, they're a, a difficult person. And it stands for the person. So when, when you then meet them, 
you're not really seeing them as they are in the moment. In other words, now this is rampant. Uh, I don't know if, probably we won't get to it this evening, perhaps uh, before going home. Relationship, personal relationship with people is neglected in Dharma practice. And uh, this is important to get at. Uh, because most of our life is lived off the cushion and in the presence of people. Uh, so that when you're in the presence of a, of a person, you can't help but have a reaction. It might be no, no reaction. Let's say you put down some money to pick up a newspaper and there's a person who's looking at you and just blank. Okay, that's that's the reaction, nothing in particular. But we form, in, in that sense, uh, each person is mirrors us. The relationship can be like a mirror. It shows, teaches us about ourselves because we react. So let's say you live with someone for a long time, whether it's marriage or a partner, whatever. We form conclusions because we get to know each other. We do say a lot of the same things over and over again. There's one wonderful Chekhov play where it's an elderly couple and they're in their dacha and they're enjoying the summer or the spring, where it is, and they know everything that each one knows what the other one's going to say. And they're still happy with each other. How do you do that? But anyway, no, and they didn't even know about Vipassana. But at any rate, so when you get to know someone, yeah, yeah, I'm just thinking of my wife. Here she comes home, yeah, uh uh-huh. It's going to be something about the hospital and how the patients didn't behave right and they made her life difficult. Hi, Larry. You know, when I was at the hospital today, uh uh-huh, right, I know. But she has my number, too. Okay, so in certain ways, we have sort of uh, conclusions, fixed images of people. And we talk about it as stereotyping, racial stereotyping. It's not about, you don't see that person. There's some picture in the mind that's superimposed on top of the person. That's delusion. So the camera, is, is you're not seeing clearly. Now, you can see that the mind is doing that. You can see that the mind has made up a hard and fast, rigid, frozen picture, conclusion, image of the other. I'm using words, but uh, some of it can be quite subtle. And once you see it, it falls away, and then there's the person. It's the same person. And even if they say the same words that you've heard over and over again, maybe this is the Chekhov couple, I don't know, uh, it's fresh because you're really there. I don't think that couple knew that. It wasn't that good. They didn't play it. They weren't. They needed some Vipassana too, I think. At any rate, do you see what I'm getting at? It's all over. In other words, the mind is seeing through the past. So we're not trying to destroy the conditioning, all the knowledge we've accumulated, but we face a very serious challenge because, for example, this morning, do you recall in the instructions, one of the basic meanings of vipassana is insight. Insight into what? One of the main insights is insight into the changing nature of all forms. Everything is changing. Molecular, whatever you tell me, microscopic, macroscopic, people, civilization, wherever you look, everything's changing. So if the world is changing constantly, coming and going, constantly changing, and we accumulate a whole bunch of what we call me, remember I'll get, uh, the... Uh, other uh, use of everyday language compared to Dharma language, uh, where uh, Buddha Dasa, my teacher in Thailand, 
uh, said that birth is perpetual suffering. He didn't mean birth from a, a physical birth. He meant the birth of me, or in more technical terms, bhavatanha, becoming. We're always be- trying to become something that's better than where we are, who we think we are. Everything's there's some we've got something is better somewhere out there. We're in here, and we got to get there. Okay, so uh, this this craving. Uh, this uh, becoming, we uh, can we see through that? Can we see through that? Because uh, what's happening is there's a changing world. The world is constantly changing. And if the mind has got lots of fixations, the mind is made up of all these... It's made up largely of the past. Somewhat more pliable and flexible. There's some room for change. But then it's a head-on collision. Can you see that if the mind tends to get fixated and the world just keeps changing, um, how can there not be suffering? That's why the insight into impermanence is so profound. You may, you know, everyone knew long before the Buddha. People have been saying it. Poetry. Every civilization uh, that, that life is short. Uh, various ways of depicting that the world is changing, impermanent. Uh, pictures of the uh, pyramids with, you know, worn down. Um, a poem, Ozymandias. It's not important. Just my that's my past coming through. Okay, um, okay. So the, pa- the it's showing how that's worn down. Uh, how the, the, the past is showing that. Um, if everything is changing and you're fixed, then your behavior is very often not going to be productive. It's not going to be, because it's not attuned to the way things actually are. So we need the past, but can we develop a way of, that's beginner's mind, don't know mind, which don't know may sound like being dopey or uninformed. By the way, in the Buddha's uh, teaching, if somebody, ignorance, you can't understand the Buddhist teaching without looking into your own mind. You can read all the books you want. So that somebody could be erudite, highly learned, if they don't understand themselves, they're ignorant in this, in this, from this, that, that language. Whereas somebody could be illiterate, and if they really understand themselves, then it's not that they're illiterate, but they're not ignorant. So it's a different standard that's being held, but it's not the one that our culture has held for us. Not at all. And so, for example, at the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, uh, the world is going through changes. I was, one of the, I was the founder of it, and I did my best, along with help from lots of people, and we got a pretty decent center going, and things started to change really rapidly. And at a certain point, I realized that in many respects, I'm dated. That is, the way we did things helped. It was, it was useful. There may have been a better way to do it, but we did what we did, and the center turned out to be a reasonably useful uh, institution, helping lots of people and uh, conveying this teaching that we're doing here. And then in comes computers and internet, and uh, the culture changes. It's always been very much a consumer culture, but now consumerism is very powerful, as is the corporate values. And so there's a huge change in the society, and someone of my generation, I'm 81, uh, 
I've, I've, what, I've, what I saw was that it's not that I have to uh, put myself in the mothballs, but I have to use the practice. If I've been teaching this way for so many years, okay, fine. Use it on yourself because you're, even though you're doing the best you can, what got you this far, uh, a lot of it is not useful anymore. And so we have someone like Sarah, for example, if you don't mind. Is she here? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and so we have gra- gradations of ignorance. Num- super number numero uno of ignorance sitting here. Michael less, because he's younger. Sarah knows everything. <laughs> uh, but we are interested in how she sees things because she's more, she, in many ways, quite naturally, she's more in touch with what's happening. I. I'm interested, and not only Sarah, just in general, because, uh, and it keeps me alive, it keeps me young in here. The body, of course, is aging. It doesn't care. It doesn't care about computers, all that. Look, buddy, I have one, for example, if you get really involved in Dharma, it really feels ageless. In other words, when you dip into that space, whatever little capacity I have for it, that place has no age, that silent space. It has no age, it has no color, it has no race, it has no gender. Uh, it's, it's not Asian or Caucasian. All of that is, has nothing to do with it. It's sometimes called the unconditioned in this lineage. There's the conditioned and there's the unconditioned. They're really not two different things, but for purposes of our teaching, it's that. So uh, if you tap the emptiness, that's the, the emptiness, that means you're understanding the law of impermanence. And you, uh, here's what I think is unique about the Buddhist teaching. Everyone knew about impermanence. And when I discovered this in this teaching, I felt, whoa, this was really has been and continues to help me. Everyone knows that things, life is impermanent and all things are impermanent. And so when the Buddha comes along, thousands of years have already passed and people know it. So what did he do that's any different? He's just saying the same old thing. But here's the difference. He said, I'm paraphrasing obviously, if we, can def- if we can clarify the mind so it can see clearly and then see the law of impermanence, but not at work on the pyramids, not at work on civilizations, not at work on uh, the, uh, the seasons, not at work in ourselves. Take a look, it's, that, that law is working in you. Your own mind. Well, do we want to do that? But if you look into your mind, and that's, if you remember this morning's instruction, let's say with, when we uh, opened it up, uh, you can have the breath accompany you as like a good friend, an anchor, and that can be helpful. And some people prefer to just sit and watch and enjoy the show. That independent of the content, uh, I'm a wonderful teacher, a wonderful Dharma teacher. I'm one of the best who's ever come around. No, you're not. You're rotten. They don't know what you're talking about. You're dated. Get out of here, Grandpa. You know, no, I'm not. I'm some learning. I'm trying to keep up to date. Uh, and you just watch this succession of of notions that keep telling you who you are. They're not consistent. They're contradictory. They vary, and many of them are not true. They, none of them are really true because they're incomplete. A concept can't be complete. Thinking can't be complete. By definition, it's incomplete. It can't grasp reality. It's about reality. Reality has to be fully, intimately experienced as it is. 
once the mind enters into it and it has its uses, it's, no, it's different. You're removed from it. It's not intimate anymore. Okay, so as you begin to, to watch, with the help of the breathing or not, you can see everything is coming and going, coming and going. You can see the body is also a field of constant change. Sounds are, are changing. The moods are changing. I love being here. I just love this place. I think I'm going to become a monk and go to Burma or a nun. I can't wait to get out of here. You know. You know. Uh, well, which one is true? How about none of them? I mean, really true. Remember also the Buddha said um, that r- true happiness is the dissolution of the false idea of I or me. In other words, that idea is so convincing, it's so powerful. We've lived our life uh, trying to fix up that, what we call self-image. We have low self-esteem, we want to get high self-esteem. Uh, somehow it's never high enough because there's always somebody who's got higher self-esteem. But there's also someone who's lower that we can look down on. And then we, maybe in Cambridge, everyone pretends that we're all equal. It's a very egalitarian society. But it's baloney. Yes, oh yeah, no, that's all, you know. We do, people feel, are doing that. So the mind, you can see all of that when you start to see how the mind works. Let's take a, a good example. This is one that uh, I've worked with a, a fair amount. Let's take something like fear. Anything you want to pick, you, you name it. Something that's strong in you. If you watch that energy arise, fear, fear, not the word. Fear, 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 fear. And there's full awareness receiving it because it's there. Why are we watching fear? Because it's there. Life provided us with it. It's not that I'm, I'm specializing in looking at fear. It showed up. It's, not, it's out of my control. The brain is secreting these different moods like digestive juices. Here's fear. You know, here's this. Here's this thought. Where did that come from? One time uh, I was sitting in meditation on a retreat much like this. And there was a conversation between two people in my head in a language I never heard of. Usually, even if I don't know the language, I can say, well, it sounds like it's, you know, Chinese or Arabic or Spanish or, you know. I didn't know what they were talking about. And they're having a great time laughing. And it goes on and on. And I'm sitting there. I'm serious. And then it's gone. And I've never heard from these two gentlemen again. (laughs) So you start to see uh, this mind that we've taken so seriously. Uh, as you watch it, that's how you cleanse the mind. In other words, it's not soap. It's not Castile soap, you know, or someone who, you know, what is that company where everyone, the, people get paid fair wages and it's, the soap is organic and I've forgotten the name of the company. Bronner's, yeah. Because all the products, I like coconut oil, and I'm, I want to know about their coconut oil. Mostly they're talking about how great they are to the workers. I'm happy you're good to the workers, but tell me about your product. I want to know what this coconut oil is. Okay. okay. So as you start to watch all this, let's say a fear or whatever turns up, and you watch it, and you see it peak. And if you can stay with it, and you can learn how to do that, maybe to begin with, you have to back off sometime. We have to use the f- breath as a friend to help you stay with it. Uh, but the day can come where you can be with it. 
And you, especially as the awareness gets stronger and stronger, the awareness can become like a flame. It's stronger than whatever comes in front of it. It's something you can experience. Flame is just a word too, but it's the best I can do. I found at that point, it's not like you're solving any problems, you're dissolving them. So how, does, how, do, the, how do we cleanse the mind, mind uh, brain, how do, brain washing? It's by seeing things clearly so that we're not identified with the fear. The fear is an energy, it's nature. It comes out of them. We didn't ask for it. There it comes. It's just na- it's part of na- our nature. It comes out. There it is. Uh, there's a watching of it. We see it peak, and then it starts to fade away, and it's gone. And then there's a relief. Oh, thank God. And you feel great. And then that's gone. And then another one comes. Well, you do enough of that, and your relationship to fear changes. Because to begin with, if you haven't examined your mind, when anything arises that you don't want, it's ferocious. It's like a mountain. It's like it's going to be there forever, like it's going to be there forever. Now, if you hear reading enough Dharma books, they're going to say, no, it won't be there forever. And you say, no, I know it won't. That has no transformative power, or very little. You have to actually see it. Again, you see it and you, you realize this energy that has tyrannized me, that has controlled me, uh, you can see what it is. It's something impersonal in a way. It comes, you can explain it psychologically. When I was a child, my mommy dropped me on my head, and you know, whatever. <laughs> but there it is. And as you start to see its nature, it starts to lose its potency. And so there's no, it's just what it is. And it lose, in losing its potency, as you watch the mind quite naturally, uh, the mind cleanses itself of itself. In other words, all the, these different conditions, as they come through the mind, they go into abeyance. They're not uprooted. It's not, I'm not saying that fear is necessarily gone. You can uproot things. But to, you watch it, and the mind is uh, emptied. There's no attachment to anything as being me or mine. And that's really what the, the Buddha is saying. Now, when something comes up, and let's say the fear comes up, and you make it, this is my fear, then suddenly you got born as a frightened person. That's what uh, Buddha Das is getting at. It's not physical rebirth. It's a mind birth. In other words, you just became something. You just became, you identified with it. There are many forms in which the mind uh, can name itself and turn itself into like a being. And if it can make, identify with fear, then you're, if you make fear, then you have fear. So as one Korean teacher I had put it, don't make anything. That's the whole Dharma. Don't make anything. You know, just watch the show. It's the best show in town. Here it comes and go, wow, look at that one. And here comes another one. Way more interesting than surfing or, you know, bobsledding and, you know, all those things that people are doing. Get down and watch the mind. Well, you can bobsled and do the rest too, but uh, do you see what I'm getting at? So that's the real brainwashing. The awareness washes the brain of its fierce attachment, which which is there because it's unexamined. The mind is unexamined. And little by little, and then you enter into a state of stillness. With some of you, I think everyone probably have had a few moments of stillness, I hope, during the, even if it's just three seconds, ten seconds, even between two thoughts, there's stillness, quiet, or between two breaths. 
the stillness, the spaciousness, everything I'm talking about, whether you call it original mind, now they're starting to translate and calling it wholeness. Not bad. It's not fragmented. Of course, Whole Food probably loves that. It's even more, they can now sell even more products. Whole Foods markets, you know. Everything is whole now and mindful and we're in the right business. Did you know that? <laughs> okay. Um, how are we doing? We're cooked, I think. Eight o'clock it ends, right? Yeah. Let me see if there's any tidying up. I'll just finish it up this way. We've started with the breathing and by attending to the breath, coming back, and every moment of mindfulness, uh, even the simplest, the most ordinary instance of mindfulness, a mindful step, mindful holding a cup while you're drinking, mindful uh, taking some food and eating it, it's all contributing to that, for that, that quality of seeing, which more and more starts becoming more continuous, refined, subtle, and strong. In Dharma language, subtle is strong. And as the mind becomes clearer, we use the breath to get started, but it doesn't end there. It's re- we're really doing the same thing. And now, uh, in, in, watching the breath cha- in watching the breath again and again, and remember just allowing the breath to be the way it is, not, ma- not preferring it be a certain way and trying to fix it if it's not, can we transfer that openness uh, to whatever turns up the way it turns up now to a much more highly charged, is that me? <laughs> highly charged field of emotions, moods, likes, dislikes, despair, joy, you know, the full range of what makes us human. Uh, can we sit not knowing what's next, sit without an agenda? There's great power in non-doing. To begin with, it sounds like if you've been brought up in getting, getting, going, achieving and all that, comparing, uh, being graded and tested and compared to someone else, then this seems like a waste of time. You're going to have to learn, we can tell you, but you have to learn for yourself that it's not a waste of time, that simply sitting in alert attention without judging and allowing everything to arise and pass away and seeing it, the mind empties itself of itself and takes you into another dimension, a dimension you can call stillness, silence, original mind, Buddha nature, lots of words for it. And then the practice becomes recognizing that when it's there, which helps stabilize it and helps, uh, contributes to it occurring again. In other words, you if you recognize it, if you're kind to silence, it likes that. And it and it visits you again. If you try to get to be silent, it's silence is very shy, it's gonna run away. It and there's no thought allowed as a sign when you get into that space, no thinking allowed in here. Because by by definition. Okay, or it can be thinking but no attachment to the thinking. It's just like an empty thought, blah blah like sky writing. No power at all. As soon as you identify with it, not only do you lose the silence, but you just got born. As soon as you see that, uh, you just got free again. Another, um, let me close with this example. So, because we've been emphasizing learning a lot, the kind of learning that can only 
be done by you. Each one, we all have to do it for ourselves. Here's a teaching that no doubt you've heard, or you will if you're new to this. Attachment leads to suffering. Well, attachment is always really about me or mine. When you're suffering, find out who's suffering. You'll see it's me who's suffering. But let's say attachment leads to suffering. Craving attachment leads to suffering. Sounds intelligent, sensible. Ajahn Chah, who's a very great Thai forest master, when he came here many years ago, he saw everyone, we were all rather new to this, and everyone, the buzzword then was letting go. Everyone was letting go of everything. You know, sort of like, it was a total IMS was packed with people who had let go of everything. <laughs> you know, and somehow he saw us, he said, if you've let go of everything, how come you all have these sour pusses on your face? You know? uh, now, some of that he didn't know that our practices, you know, not looking at people and all, he thought everyone was depressed. But... Uh, what he, but what he saw was that um, it's, what, they, what is needed is to back off and to really learn, is it true that, it, this sounds so basic, is it true that attachment leads to suffering? In other words, if you're holding on to anything in a changing world, how can it not lead to suffering? But that might make sense rationally, logically. It doesn't have much transformative power. It's good in coffee shop discussions, but that's as far as it'll go. But if you're right there and you experience yourself doing it, you're in the middle of it and you can see how you are literally participating in and creating your own suffering by holding on to something that doesn't want to be held on to or trying to push something away that has not outlived its, its life yet. And as you begin to see how that, then you're starting to really... And so that in a sense, letting go is really letting be. And we're learning how to let things be. And in the light of seeing, they're not powerful. Uh, I'll leave you with this final. Did I say final more than once? (laughs) Usually I go about three or four finals. Uh, See, I watch my mind. I'm on to my own, you know, image. All right. There's a, uh, an image that's used since ancient times. It comes from the Chan tradition, uh, the Chinese, what we call Zen. Um, what happens in meditation practice is we turn ice into water. It's not like you grow a new mind. It's like, so the, our, in a, again, it's a metaphor. Don't get too tied up with it, literally. Um, where everything is frozen, fixated, so it, and uh, the awareness melts it all down or becomes water, fluid. And you can almost feel that. Let's say if you're watching the energy of fear, the energy starts to dissipate and fall away. And in the process, uh, you feel uh, a tremendous increase in energy. It's gone. And we have so many ways in which we squander energy. And one of them is by seeing a company, not, not, not seeing and being attached. And the mind is so wild. Think about those of you who knew, you know how wild your mind can be. All of us know it. Much of that, that's squandered energy. It's repeating itself over and over again. When I get home, I'm going to do this. When I get, yeah, you said that. When I get home, I'm going to, when I get home, when I get home, you know, like no one tells me what to do. When I get telling my boss, my boy, I'm telling him off on Monday. No one, I get ready. Yeah, we know. Do it already, you know. Uh, but you, what we don't realize is that 
there's a tremendous amount of energy squandered in the unskillful use of the mind. So we're learning how to get to know the mind and we have the capacity to change that. And the key is the clear seeing. Okay, can we have a few moments of, of stillness? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.